Hi, and welcome to Food Forest Walk, a podcast about permaculture-designed food forest ecosystems. The Festival Beach Food Forest is a regenerative agroforestry system. It's located on the shores of Ladybird Lake along I-35 in Austin, Texas. I'm Leah Lavise, reminding you that this is a slideshow. You can see the plants that are mentioned in your Podcast 2.0 app. Go to podcastapps.com to download your new modern podcast app and get the most out of this podcast. Our opening music is by Josh Robbins of Invincible Czars. Stay tuned after the walk for music by Oliver Rajamani. And now let's join our guide, Robert Leal, at the Festival Beach Food Forest to learn a little bit about some of the amazing plants that are growing there. Good morning, everyone. My name is Robert. We're excited to take this fall walk with you. You know, the the season's changing, the leaves are falling, and uh, it's a good time to be in the forest. The weather's nice, and uh, yeah, so we want to be able to walk the forest in a slow, mindful way, you know, Feel free to ask us any questions you have. This is a collaborative walk. So yeah, so this is a permaculture site. Um, So I imagine that's a new concept for a lot of you. It's an incredible design science. It's basically taking the wisdom and knowledge of our ancestors that have, you know, gathered all this incredible information from years and eons of, of experience to create systems that, that create abundance. That, you know, it has a lot to do with observation, observing the patterns of the sun you know, through the seasons, observing the rainfall, how it affects the, the ground, the soil, uh, the wind patterns through the year. You know, all the elements, basically, you're taking into account you know, even fires, if you live in, in areas where there's wildfires, you take that into account. Uh, wildlife sectors. So you, you basically get a, an eagle's eye view of the site that you're working with. And it doesn't even have to be land. It could be also an organization, a school. It could be a, an invisible structure. It doesn't have to be physical. Uh, so permaculture is grounded through these three ethics. It's what filters our concepts. It's earth care, people care, and reinvestment of surplus, or also known as fair share, right? So we look at the first ethic, does it take care of the earth? Any of our concepts, our ideas, is it taking care of the earth? Yes, okay. Does it work for our our region? Does it work for our bioregion? Is it appropriate for our place? Okay, yeah, it does. If it's taking up too much resources, too many, you know, too much water, or too much, it needs too much uh, nutrients, we probably won't, won't integrate that in our system, right? The second, the second ethic is people care. Does it take care of people? And usually, you know, if you're taking care of the earth, it kind of spills over into taking care of people, right? That's where it, it's all rooted and grounded in. That's what the practice, you know, really, really focuses on creating taking care of us, not, not only us, but the, the plants, the animals, the insects. And then usually when you have a, des, a, a system that's designed 
appropriately, you're creating abundance like this. This is, this is an incredible demonstration of abundance, right? So much medicine, fruits, resources, you know, we can make tools, some of these things. It's creating a lot of shelter for birds. You know, a lot of insects are, are living here. Humans even live in here sometimes, you know, there's, <laughs> there's people that take shelter in here. So we look at patterns that we find in nature and we try to mimic those patterns. We try to replicate those patterns like spirals, waves, scattered patterns. There's a lot of different patterns that we see in nature, like the leaf, you know, how the, the branching patterns, how nutrients disperses, you know. We, we look at all these patterns and we look at our place and we integrate these, these functional patterns into our space, right? So I like to start here. You guys can come over here and look at this uh, little kiosk. It's basically showing the different layers of a food forest, right? We have the canopy tree that grows up to 30, 40 feet, 50 feet large canopy trees, like, like this pecan tree is our canopy right here, right? And then you have a sub canopy tree, trees that will grow up to 20 feet, 15, 20 feet, a lot of fruiting trees, peaches, nectarines, plums. We have, uh, a shrub layer, right? So the shrubs that grow around the subcanopy. Then we have an herbaceous layer, plants, you know, medicinal herbs in the area. The root layer, we have a fungal layer. We have a vine layer, the things that climb up the trunks or up the, up the branches. We also have a ground cover layer that covers the earth, right? that shades the earth and protects the soil, keeps moisture down. All these roots are having a symbiotic relationship with the fungi. Here, you can see the little oyster mushroom drawn here. And the root, they're, they're connecting to the roots. The roots are providing carbohydrates and sugars. And the fungi is making bioavailable minerals from the dissolving the rock. So this is beautiful symbiotic relationship that's happening underground. And in order for that to happen, we need a lot of compost, mulch, organic material to feed the fungi, to feed the roots, and keep this, this symbiotic relationship healthy. Right? So you'll look around, you'll notice there's so much, look, look at that, how much organic material there is, that how, how thick of mulch and, and compost there is, holding all that nutrients. And uh, that's important, especially when it gets cold, Right? It's like a blanket. It's insulating the roots. It's keeping the, the roots healthy. Right? And um, also helps in the winter too, by keeping the water down, keeping the water in the soil. On the flip side, you know, we experience extreme heat, extreme summers, right? So some plants are demonstrating a lot of stress during that time, uh, like this elderberry behind us right here. This summer, it was struggling. It was struggling so much. And usually they'll have a lot of berries right now. And those berries are really good for boosting our immune system. You see elderberry syrup, you know, in the grocery stores and health food stores. The flowers are really good for tea, beautiful white flowers. 
and it, it does the same, you know, it supports the immune system. Those are roses. Yeah, that's a rose bush. It's uh, hanging out below that mimosa tree. That's a mimosa. Are you guys familiar with the mimosa tree? No. Mimosa tree has these beautiful, vibrant pink flowers. They're gorgeous. And uh, this tree is considered the happy tree. It, uh, it actually consumed, used the, the root bark typically to make a tea or a tincture. And it boosts our endorphins. So it's good for, you know, if you're suffering from depression or anxiety, things like that. It can really boost your mood. It's a mood enhancing herb. Um, the mimosa is considered invasive in our area. So it's important to kind of keep an eye out, you know, for it not to get out of control wherever you plant it. Yeah, it's the happy tree. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, so right here we have a fig tree, obviously. So yeah, the, you can make teas with, with the leaves. Not many people use the leaves for tea, but uh, you can, and they're actually really good for us. From what I understand, it helps with people that are experiencing uh, sugar level issues. It helps with insulin levels, regulating sugar. So helpful for diabetics. Yeah, it's a really wonderful, wonderful, not only fruit, but medicinal tree leaf. And the beautiful thing about fruit trees, you can use the leaves as tea. You can dry the leaves and use them as tea also. And they have wonderful flavors and benefits. Anyone recognize this one? Texas poinsettia. This is our, our you know, the poinsettias that they sell in the grocery stores and in the flower shops, the beautiful red ones. So this is our, our native poinsettia. And it has this beautiful orange, vibrant orange. Looks like a paint, like, like someone painted it on there. And it's really, really, really beautiful. We don't use this for preparations. We kind of leave this alone. It could have some harmful alkaloids that we're not really interested in. It's attracting pollinators. With that, that color, you know, the flowers are very bright and vibrant. Whenever you see those bright colors, it's, it's literally attracting the pollinators, the bees, butterflies, hummingbirds, you know, the dragonflies. That's the function of this color right now. It's bring in the pollinators. So yeah, so a fantastic pollinator. Here's another pollinator that's blooming right now. You'll start to see a lot more lantana blooming right now. Uh, it's again, we're not eating the lantana. We're not making any preparations with the lantana, but it's a beautiful companion in the garden, right, to attract your, your pollinators. This is thyme. Pass it around. That's a sable palm, beautiful palm. These fan leaves that the palm demonstrates here, it's a great windbreak, uh, sound barrier. This tree right here, anyone recognize this one? This is ginkgo tree. Yeah, ginkgo tree. This is an incredible, incredible cognitive herb. It helps with mental focus, memory, uh, overall cognition. Uh, it's also a great meditation herb. So, you know, you'll have a little ginkgo tea and then sit and meditate and just really helps clear the mind and have really good focus. This is one of the most ancient trees. I forgot the exact age that this goes back, but this is the oldest 
tree ancestor that we have here in the forest. Yeah. What's the name of it again? Ginkgo. Ginkgo? Ginkgo tree. There's a really interesting fact around how old this tree goes back. It's a, indigenous to Asia, I believe. 200 million years. 200 million back years. Before dinosaurs were on the earth. 200 million years ago, this tree has been around, you know? That's incredible, and it's still here. Here in the forest, it looks like it's, it's struggling a little bit here. In the fall, they'll start to turn this bright gold, like bright golden color. And it's absolutely incredible to, to witness. Ginkgo tree. Ginkgo biloba. Ginkgo biloba. And again, there's a, a passion vine climbing up that stump. We have rosemary that we just recently planted. So like culinary rosemary. Anyone recognize this one? This one's Datura. Datura, it, it creates these beautiful moon-like flowers. They're like white, those white, vibrant white flowers. It's also considered devil's weed. It is very psychoactive, very psychoactive. The reason it's called devil's weed is people consume it, ingest it, it literally can take your consciousness into a very dark dimension. And people relate it to hell, that experience. Can you give us a demonstration? No, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'll pass. So it's not like shrooms. It's different. It's very different. Very different. Very different. What is it called again? Datura. 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 Jimson weed, devil's weed, a lot of different, it falls into another, a lot of different names. In India, there's a, a religious sect of Shivaites, people that worship Shiva. You'll us, usually see Datura on the altar of the Shivaites, and they, they use it as an as a offering for Shiva because that's Shiva's favorite plant. Yeah, so it's really well respected, really well respected. But Shiva is the god of the underworld, right? So it's kind of this, this lower dimension, right? To say it's bad, it's just, it's darkness, you know? And the, we need the dark, we need the light. It's all part of one thing, right? It's fascinating, fascinating plant, fascinating plant. That one grew wild. That one grew, that one just emerged and we, you know, we let it, we let it grow. We weren't actively planting Dertura in here for people, you know? But it's important to know, you can't just go over there and just experiment with a lot of these things, yeah. Some say you could say it's invasive, but it's, you know, it grows well out here. These are Yopan holly berries, native to all of the southeast of the United States. So it wraps all around northeast of Texas, going all the way to Florida. Anyone heard of uh, yerba mate? This is our Yerba mate. This is a caffeinated herb that is native to North America. You know, the yerba mate is native to South America, you know, Uruguay, Argentina. So this is, you're starting to find these in uh, health food stores nowadays as a caffeine alternative. So it's really fantastic. You'll see this along the creeks, along the, the green belt, walking on hikes. And it comes from the berry, right? The leaves. Oh, the leaves. Yes, the berries will make you sick. Yeah. Will make you nauseous. Yeah. So, so don't. The berries are really. My my son is really fascinated by this this plant. <laughs> I saw him the other day, and 
he was communing with the tree, with the bush, really getting close to it and like, and like witnessing it, like really like looking deeply into it. I was like, I, I was watching him from afar and it was a, like a special moment for me. I was like, wow, he's like actually like deeply connecting to this plant, you know, it, it drew him in. And he started like picking the berries and looking at them. And the, like, he was just really, really fascinated by it. And I found that really, really special. So, you know, we all have these plants that, that draw us in, you know, I just find that fascinating. Yopan holly. This is Yopan holly, yeah. So you notice these, um, these acacia trees, these leguminous trees in the system, you know, and uh, what they're doing is serving a function for the fruit trees. They are providing obviously shelter, microclimates, but they're also grabbing nitrogen from the atmosphere and sequestering that carbon or that nitrogen into its roots. And when you cut these, these branches back, the, that, those nitrogen uh, nodules are being released and supporting fertilizing the, the fruit trees around. So it helps the fruit trees grow more vigorously. And uh, in a permaculture system, it, Nitrogen trees are really essential to have for biomass, for the, for the you know, mulching the, the branches and the, the leaves and you know, using it as a mulch layer. But, and when you're, when you're cutting it back, you're also providing that nitrogen in the, in the root zones. So again, this is something our ancestors recognized. They, know, they noticed that things grew well around leguminous plants. And it was through that observation, they're like, why don't we put gardens around these, these uh, leguminous trees? Mesquite is a legume, acacia, uh, locust trees. Uh, yeah, things that have these like these bean pods, right? And then you, you'll find it also in cover crops, leguminous plants are used to, to bring fertility to the, to, to the, to the crops like beans, right? Soybeans often used, cow peas, uh, snow peas, all these. Yeah. So here we have a ground cover with some snow peas, some uh, turnips, with some radishes in there. So these cover crops again are, you know, shading the soil, providing a lot of biomass in the, in the soils, in the root zone. You know, turnips, they get fat roots, right? So when you cut them and you leave those roots in the ground, they decompose and create a lot of fertility for the, for the next uh, round of planting. And it's delicious. These are delicious crops, right? They're incredible. You could eat these young shoots, these young leaves, nutrient-dense food. And it's all ground cover right here. And they're really thickly planted so you can go in there and pick away, you know, to help thin it out. We use this method called chop and drop here with all the biomass that, that grows that's not useful. We'll chop it at the base, like the, the cover crop, we'll do that. We'll cut at the base and leave that material there, leave it as a mulch. That's one method. Some people just crimp it. You use a tool to, to fold 
when, when the plant reaches a certain maturity where it can just fold over like that, you crimp it, you break, basically break, but without cutting it, you break the, the base of the stem and it just stays folded over and it slowly decomposes. The idea is to leave the roots in the soil to feed all the, the microorganisms in the soil, right? We want microorganisms to be well fed because they're ultimately what is feeding the plants, the micro, microorganisms with the fungi. So we want to think biologically in a system, not chemically, right? Agricultural, you know, the green revolution was all about chemicals. NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, you know, that's, that's all they were focused on, NPK. But there's, there's something to be said that's, that's starting to come around finally is when you have healthy biology in your soil, you're going to have healthy plants, right? That makes sense, right? We have a healthy gut biome, we're going to feel healthy. Same thing in the soil. The soil is like the plant's stomach. If there's compost, organic material, if you look in there, there's, there's, there's you know, organisms moving around, there's life in there, you know. If it's mulched and composted, like compost and mulch, you're going to have healthy soil. You know, you, you, get, you can test your soils, obviously, also. I, I strongly recommend that also. If you're about to plant a garden, test your soil. Find out what your soil needs, what it's deficient in, you know, minerals. Plants can help with that. Areas that have been clear cut, species like mesquite trees, these nitrogen fixing trees will emerge out of a clear cut zone. These nitrogen fixing trees are trying to replenish the soil with nutrients. Mycelium is nature's molecular disassembler. So what that means, it's breaking things down. It's breaking it down. So it's often being used nowadays as a way to remediate toxic spills, nuclear fallout, oil spills, because it's literally taking those harmful compounds, breaking them down to become actually bioavailable in a good way. It does that with the heavy metals. It does that with any toxicity that we can find in the land. What does that? Mycelium, mushrooms, fungi. So Central Texas Mycology is a great organization. Plug in, they have a uh, Instagram and uh, plug in with them and also connect with mushroom farmers. They're giving away these blocks, these mushroom blocks, and they're fantastic in your garden. This beautiful, vibrant red plant right here is called Hopi Amaranth. Did you call it Hopi? Yeah, Hopi Red Amaranth. Okay. Yeah, this is cultivated by the Hopi in Arizona. And they use this as a dye, a natural dye. Look how vibrant that is, you know? Incredible. And it's very high in calcium and iron, obviously a lot of iron, right? Antioxidants for sure. It's one of the most nutrient dense plants we have here. Yeah, the seeds are often used. But yeah, you could eat the, the leaves fresh also. Uh, you can get these stems. What I like to do is break these stems off and kind of use it like a asparagus too. Like cook the whole thing, like steam it, delicious. And we have this moringa. It's nature's multivitamin, straight up. This is nature's multivitamin. It's considered the miracle tree. 
the pods, I see any pods. Well, the seed pods, you can use the seeds to filter water. The seeds will absorb all the toxins out of the water. It's really fascinating. Has it like a spicy flavor, right? Kind of hits you in the throat. I like to steam it, put it in, in soups, you know, add it into smoothies. You'll find it in health food stores, in the health food section as a superfood because it, it really is, it has so many vitamins, calcium, iron, you name it. It's packed with vitamins. An overview of our berms and swell system. The swell is, is like a, basically a basin where water will flow into. So let's say this is the high point of the land, the water flowing down, and it'll be captured into this, this uh, basin, into the swell. And the berm, is the mound, the, the soil that was dug out from here is mounded downhill to slow that water on the landscape. You slow the water down across the landscape to spread it out. So you see the water is, is flowing in this direction, the surface runoff, and it's being captured into, this, into the swale. And it's hydrating the root zones of all these, these trees. These are terrace systems you see like in like Asia, you know how the hillsides are terraced or in Mexico you see these, these terrace systems. Basically you can terrace almost any land that has a slope and most land has slopes. In our case here, the food forest is kind of in a bowl, right? So the, the low point is in here and the water is moving into, this, into these directions, right? Does that make sense? It's all converging. Water's run off this way, this direction, and we're wanting to harvest every drop of that rainwater into the landscape to keep our fruit trees hydrated because we are a place of extremes. Right? When it rains, it rains a lot. And when it's hot and dry, it's, it's dry for a long period of time. So we try to stretch that water out by harvesting it in the ground. This is also called passive rainwater harvesting. They're passively harvesting the rainwater into the, into the ground. And it charges the groundwater, the, the aquifers. Systems that are implemented on large scales have shown to bring back springs, uh, increase the, the hydrological systems on, on the site. And then of course you can harvest rainwater off your rooftops, right? Because the rainwater is, is the water that the plants want, right? If you water your plants with the municipal water, the city water, plants are kind of like, they're not really wanting it, you know, because there's chlorine in there killing the biology. It's just not, not good. So we want to put rainwater on our gardens. And if you're using the city water, filter it if you can. You know, chlorine filters and things like that. This once was a fish hatchery. Yeah. Um, the history of this site, I forgot the exact amount of, of ponds, uh, but a lot of fish were, were farmed here. Catfish, large ponds that were hand dug, I believe. And it was a whole industry for, for the east side to, to feed people. And this was in the 40s, I believe. So imagine all those fish deposits. I imagine, I like think about that quite a bit, you know, all that, that fish deposit into the soil that's creating a lot of fertility so I, I, I feel like that has a big part of why everything here is just so vibrant so 
big. It grows you know, really, really well here. On, on top of that, we're adding all this compost and mulch, and it's just a really prime place to, to have a, a food forest. So basically, a microclimate is using trees or you know, canopy trees, subcanopy trees to create shade that will protect plants that will need that shelter to survive the extreme times of the year. Right? If, it, if these, a lot of these plants were in open sun, they probably wouldn't survive. So you'll find things that grow in tropical conditions in the food forest because of the, the microclimates that are created by these subcanopy trees, you know, shading it out. This show is run on a value for value system. That's time, talent, or treasure. The very best way to show your support is to come out and volunteer with us. You can find volunteer opportunities and a calendar of events at festivalbeach.org. You can also donate to Festival Beach and sign up for the newsletter at festivalbeach.org. Thanks for joining this walk today. This is Leah Lavise, and I'll see you at the Food Forest. Mm -hmm.